นโมทัสสะภะวะทุวะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะทุวะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะวะทุวะระหะตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมสังฆังนามสังWhat's involved? However, I did want to comment on the uh, significant and very beautiful response that it triggered right across the country, with many individuals, groups, and restaurants, businesses. Some of them, perhaps, uh, not already not doing very well financially. Councils, even there was an incident of. Uh, Rival football teams coming together to support a program to provide food for disadvantaged children. And what struck me about it was the reaction was not one of calculated assessment of the situation. It was. It was a response from the heart. It was a compassionate response, at least certainly that's what it looked like—a compassionate response of concern for those who are or would be suffering. There's a big difference between analysing a situation and coming up with a conceptual solution, and. Feeling the reality, empathizing, empathizing with what it must be like to go hungry, to be a child and go hungry, in a country as affluent as ours. Is that what we want? And this perception triggered a, a very beautiful response from many people, providing, offering to provide food, offering to provide transport. And at least in some cases, making a clear statement: this is not about politics. There's a recorded incident in the traditional scriptures, which many of you will be familiar with, about a woman known as Kissa Gotami, who was suffering great loss. Her child had just died, and she was so. Beside herself with grief that she couldn't even put the corpse down. She was wandering around in this state of of great grief, carrying the the corpse with her. And the villagers took pity on her and suggested that she should go and see this holy man who was who was staying nearby. And the holy man happened to be the Buddha. And and so she ran off to see the Buddha and uh, hoping that he'd be able to help her. And 
And he said, yes, he could help her. However, she needed to bring him first a cup of mustard seed. And the cup of mustard seed needed to come from a house where nobody had died. And so Kissa Gotomi, feeling hopeful and quickly went off trying to find a cup of mustard seed. And of course, as you can imagine, she went from one house to the other and they were all willing to give her a cup of mustard seed. But once she brought up the subject of whether anybody had died there, they all let her know that they'd rather not be reminded of it. Uh, of course, somebody had died there and the, the pain was, was terrible and they didn't want to think about it. And as the story is related, she went from one house to another until eventually it dawned on her that this pain of loss happens to all of us. She felt with them. She felt their suffering with them. She recognized the shared predicament that we're all in. We all suffer. Whether it's the pain of loss of a loved one or the pain of anxiety, fear. Suffering comes to all beings and if we only approach this predicament from our heads and think about it, then it doesn't elicit the response of compassion. So this is something with this predicament that we find ourselves in at the moment, not just talking about econ economics and school meals, but uh, there's all sorts of incidents of craziness going on and the response to the global pandemic and many other political situations, the, the unrest and the disturbance and the confusion. When we see it, when we look at it, how does it affect us? How do we meet it? Do we just think about it or do we feel how we feel about it? There are plenty of examples of, of um, madness going around and unkindness going around. The idea of abandoning refugees in, in the middle of the Mediterranean, it's just a few miles away. There's refugees stuck up there in a boat, abandoned, nobody helping them. Or just a few years ago, the, the terrible flare-up of war in the Balkans. After so many years of, of living comfortably together, cooperating, friendly, and then this horrendous flare-up. How could, how could human beings behave in such a way? As I say, if we just think about that, well, there's this cause or that cause, but if we feel what our heart feels, feeling the sadness, so if all the education, all the affluence, all the opportunity that humanity has, all the resources that we have, we still behave like this. How sad. How sad. And to feel what that feels like in the heart. And to let that inform our conduct. When our mind is informed also by what our heart has to say about the situation, then the decisions, the actions that we take are more likely to be balanced, more likely to be appropriate. But if our hearts are not open, not alive, not informing 
our minds, then all our decisions, all our ideas, all our opinions are very partial. So when we do look at the situation that we find ourselves in, all this madness around us and fear what we feel, we have a choice. We, we can certainly get worried. We can contract around that pain in the heart and, and get indignant. And then indignation is an expression of a heart that is already too full with, with suffering. Too much sadness. The heart is already full of sadness. A lot of it denied dukkha. Unreceived sadness from the past. And then we just get a bit more and it flows out and comes out as indignation. We don't have the space in our hearts to accommodate. We can't even feel what we feel because the the feeling department's already full. Our heart's already full of pain and so we can't even feel this pain. We can't even, we're not in a position to even contemplate it, to consider it. Just react by projecting the pain out. How could they behave like that? These horrible people. How could they do such a thing? Righteous indignation. So that's one option. Or another option is to remember our practice, come back to the whole body-mind, and remember that this awareness that we're living out of, this is not a fixed thing. Just because from time to time we find ourselves get to the point where we say, I can't stand this anymore, doesn't mean to say that that's ultimate. It feels that way because we've imposed limitations on awareness. We've fixed our hearts at a certain capacity. This experience is too much. But that's not, that's not the problem with the experience. That's not the problem with the reality. That's an imposition that we've set on our own awareness, on our own hearts. And it's not a fixed thing. If we have faith, we have confidence in the teaching. There's training in mindfulness the four foundations of mindfulness the, the message there is it's, it's possible to expand our field of awareness and with expanded awareness we can accommodate more of life more joy without getting intoxicated and more sorrow and sadness without falling into despair more aversion without falling into hatred So when we look at the sadness of the world, when we register the madness that is taking place, we don't have to contract. We don't have to judge. We can feel what we feel, register our heart's sensitivity, and let that inform our contemplations. And with this approach, then the predicament that we find ourselves in can actually be a trigger for contemplation. This predicament doesn't have to trigger judgment, doesn't have to trigger frustration. 
It can do. If we haven't dealt with the backlog of denied dukkha, the situation we're in right now can be just too much. However, for those who have the good fortune to have heard the teachings that point in the direction of freeing our hearts from the tendency to create more dukkha now, but also, and very importantly, to free our hearts from the consequence of previously denied dukkha. It's, even a lot of Buddhists don't have a particularly good handle on this sometimes. And, and instead of turning attention around and, and feeling the heart's response to reality, really meeting themselves where they're at, and they hold on to a vision of a goal out there somewhere and, and then focus their attention, narrow their field of awareness and, and possibly drop into some pleasant state and a sort of form of tranquilizer, using meditation as a sort of tranquilizer to numb themselves against what they feel. And then when the circumstances change and they can't be in that state anymore, they come out and and then they find the no better equipped to deal with life's difficulties, unfortunately. That backlog of denied dukkha sooner or later needs to be met and let go of. And if it's sadness, it's very understandable. A lot of people go through very sad early stages of life and parents were not necessarily properly prepared to give them all the support they needed when they needed it and the circumstances they grew up in. Children, of course, not prepared themselves to know how to meet the sadness with mindfulness and restraint and wise reflection and let go of it. So they can easily develop habits of denying it and you deny sadness long enough, it becomes unconscious. It just goes into unawareness. And, and then what happens on top of sadness is often anger. So then we come across the Buddha's teachings and, and they appear stunningly logical and impressive and, and pleasing. And, and then we come across meditation and the opportunity to discipline attention and it gives us access to a bit of relative calm and tranquility and we feel really pleased about that. However, we have to understand that all of that is preparing us for the real work of turning attention around and meeting ourselves in the experience of limitation in that place where we denied life, talking here about sadness and denied it and locked it away in the basement. Sooner or later, if we really want to work on purifying awareness, we're going to need to meet ourselves there and, and endure through it, burn through it, see through it, and eventually, hopefully, let go of it. And if that happens, well then, as I was saying, the predicaments we find ourselves in that are frustrating and challenging and hard work, like the situation globally right now can be a trigger for contemplation. We can start to ask more meaningful questions, start to reprioritize our life.
and think about things that we perhaps not really noticed before. So confusion and chaos does not have to trigger indignation. It can also trigger deeper, more relevant contemplation. One of the things I've been contemplating recently is uh, affluence. Generally, we associate affluence with increased well-being. Affluence is a good thing. Certainly the, the fact that the improved medical treatment now means that we, we don't have so much polio or leprosy in the world anymore, that certainly feels good. And increased convenience on all sorts of levels has its advantages. However, has it, has it really made us more contented? Has affluence made us more contented? Or is it not the case that actually it's made us more impatient and in many cases more selfish? When everything is convenient and affluent and accessible, then it tends to condition the sense of self, me, with the idea that I'm entitled to get what I want when I want it. And of course we know that's definitely not the case. We might think it's the case, and from time to time it might feel like the case, but certainly when we get old and the joints are feeling sore and we're, we're even dying, I am not going to be getting what I want, for sure. And what are we going to do then? The reality is, much of life we're not getting what we want. Convenience and affluence can condition us in a way whereby we actually become weak. We can't tolerate not getting what we want when we want. That's interesting. I find it interesting to contemplate that. Like right now, a lot of people can't get what they want. Shops are closing and even deliveries from the supermarket are not so easy to get at the moment. And how do we respond to that? How do we respond to not getting what we want when we want? That's a, that's a good test. That's a stress test for our awareness. Do we have the capacity to feel what we feel? I feel annoyed because I don't get what I want. Yeah, we might feel annoyed, but do we have to collapse around that feeling of annoyance and become angry? Is that an obligation? Or is there a way of expanding awareness, feeling the heat in the body, uh, allowing that, that sensitivity to inform our contemplation. This disappointment is not ultimate. To feel it, to register it. So all the progress of the last half a century, all the affluence and progress on so many material levels, is it enough this crisis that we're faced with right now, perhaps it's going to help us ask such questions. Has it really equipped us with selflessness? Yes, the response to the government not providing food for children who are going to otherwise go hungry can trigger a compassionate response from people. But does it have to wait for such a crisis before 
compassion is triggered, would it not be more suitable that we treat our awareness in the same way that we treat our material concerns? The affluence and opportunities that we've had over the last half a century have made us very well educated and very clever on certain levels, but on the level of awareness, we're still in the dark ages a lot of the time. Now, not, I don't mean to paint a completely negative picture. I personally, I think there's a lot of very good signs. Like, like one of the good signs is the interest in mindfulness that has been happening over the last uh, last decade, I, I suppose it is. And, and people coming around to considering, well, yes, we've got all this affluence, we've got all this comfort, all this convenience, but we're also still pretty greedy. And mindfulness can be a really useful tool for working with discontentment. It is a good tool for working for discontentment. When we're not when we don't have an embodied form of mindfulness, we're very vulnerable. We, we can be driven by heedless habits. And if there's mindfulness, then there can be a quality of readiness, alertness, aliveness, to see what's going on there. And so we're able to work with the information that we're getting much better. And to be more responsible and not so vulnerable. However, mindfulness alone is not not enough at all, nowhere near enough. You could be mindfully booking an extravagant holiday, unaware of the consequences of what's happening. You could be mindfully eating a at an exceedingly expensive restaurant and walk out without paying any attention to the homeless people sleeping on the streets. Common and garden variety mindfulness is good, but what is really needed to make that mindfulness really useful is what the Buddha referred to as Indriya Sangwara. Mindfulness, the Pali word for mindfulness is sati. The Pali word indriya sangra means restraint. That capacity to inhibit conditioned reactions. Any of you that have learned Alexander technique will be familiar with the training that the, the teacher takes you through where you're taught how to inhibit the tendency to contract, particularly around the neck. And we, we learn stages of life to contract our muscles and, and so we have to learn how to not do that, to inhibit constructive inhibition and that's what's being pointed to with indriya sangra or, or restraint. When somebody says something unkind and we feel hurt do we have to react with something that's going to hurt them? It can feel tempting feel drawn to it and particularly if like with sadness if our heart is already filled with old resentment and feeling like we've been mistreated and hurt in the past and if somebody hurts us just a little bit and the temptation is to 
to strike out and hurt back. Is that productive? Well, you don't be very bright to know that that's not productive. And it just goes on and on, people hurting each other. So what do we do? Do we repress the pain? Grit our teeth and pretend that we are not feeling indignant and hurt and offended. Well, the Buddha had a lot to say about the two extremes of indulging and denying. Last night we were chanting the Tamachakapavatana Sutta. It starts out with pointing out these two extremes of indulging in pleasure and denying pleasure. But then there's this middle way. The Buddha talked about the alternative of developing that form of strength, that quality of alertness, whereby you can feel what you feel and just hold it. It's not indulging, it's not denying. Whole body, mind registering the heat, the pain, the impulse to lash out. Yes, it's like this, but you bear with it. You hold it, you bear with it. You bear with it. And what happens, it fades out. It's been resolved, it's been let go of. Now, if you start to have an appreciation for that possibility, there can tremendous hope can come from that. A strengthening of faith can come from that. The pain of life is not something we have to just keep running away from. It's what we learn in early on in life that somehow dukkha is an enemy. We want to try and avoid it as much as possible. We're not taught that you have to understand it. Well, core of the Buddha's teaching is there is dukkha, there is pain, there is suffering and there's a cause for it, it needs to be understood and sadly most of us don't get that education, say well there is pain, there is suffering and just try and get away from it as soon as you can and have as little of it as possible and if you believe in that then around about 38, 39, 40 you start to die off rigor mortis starts to set in and start to you have a midlife crisis because the heart is now filled with denied dukkha and the only alternative is to numb out and not feel anymore and that's where drugs and alcohol abuse come in and people call it self-medicating and what they're doing is you know, tranquilizing themselves so temporarily at least they, they get a break from, from the pain so mindfulness without restraint is nowhere near enough. However, if there is mindfulness and restraint, then we can meet the world, we can look at the world, we can contemplate the world. You see the, how, the, how influenced we are by the advertisers to want more. How intimidated we can be by ill-intentioned politicians to fear more. And instead of just denying it or indulging in it, maybe there's a possibility we'll be able to receive it and say, oh, it's like this. This guy's an arch manipulator. Well, these advertisers, they really must have had some really good psychologists working for them to come up with a plan like that. They do. I mean, that's advertising agencies employ psychologists and check out all the research to how to, how to delude people more quickly delude them without knowing that they're being manipulated. If there's mindfulness and restraint, then you can feel yourself being manipulated. Yeah, I want to buy that. 
I'd went online just to buy this, but once you'd ordered that and it was in the basket, then they, there's a pop-up that says, well, since you're getting that, why didn't you get this as well? So, yeah, I do want this, but do I have to get it? Is it an obligation? Just because I want it, do I have to get it? Well, if there's mindfulness, you know there's something going on there, and if there's restraint, then there's that capacity to skillfully inhibit the reaction without just repressing. Now, talking about this, of course, might be an interesting argument, but it'll only make sense if we, we put some effort into exercising. And this is where meditation is so important. That you see how the monkey mind, just jumping here, jumping there, won't stay still for very long at all. But if we're skillful, if we're careful, if we're interested, then we can little by little apply this discipline of attention in a gentle, skillful way, and the monkey mind starts to settle down. You say, all right, there is this possibility of training attention. It's not just reacting. There can also be responding and reflecting on life. All the liking, disliking that makes our lives so busy, so challenging. Most of us are brought up and you just get as much as what you like and avoid what you dislike. From a practice perspective, there's mindfulness and restraint, able to reflect on these dynamics. Yeah, liking. I really like going on holidays to such and such a place. Maybe you do. But do we have to go? But I like it. So... When you're dying, what are you going to do? You're going to go on a holiday when you're dying? So the opportunity this training gives us is to recognize the reality of the situation we're in, whether it's agreeable and, and, and lovely or whether it's, as it is at the moment, pretty mad, pretty crazy, a lot of the time for a lot of people, to be able to look at it, not run away from it, and study the liking and disliking and maybe find that there's some space in which this liking and disliking is arising and ceasing, the space of awareness. Once again, if our hearts, if our awareness is chock-a-block full of denied dukkha, well then this is not going to be easy. But that's where we start. We start with saying, oh, my heart feels so filled up with life that hasn't been fully received. Let it be there. Whole body mind, willing receptivity. And I mean whole body mind, we need to be physical. Just sitting meditation is probably not going to be enough. A lot of people also requires a physical form of activity to find our way, to burn our way, to endure our way through all this denied life. But if we do find our way through it and discover some space discover the freedom of expanded awareness and then start to look at the liking and disliking that has previously troubled us so much. Contemplate it. Use the situation we find ourselves in to get skilled in contemplation. And this is, this is the training in wisdom. Mindfulness and restraint also are not, they're not the goal. 
the goal is wisdom, the wisdom that sees clearly, that sees accurately, that understands that which leads to well-being and that which leads to increased suffering. But the wisdom is not something that we're going to acquire just by thinking about life. We also need to feel what we feel about life. When we look at what's happening around us and we, we feel sad, we don't have to decide that's a problem. If we say it's a problem, we've made it a problem. We can also say, this is life. Well, the way the Buddha put it was, Sabe Sankara Dukkha. All conditioned phenomena is Dukkha. Doesn't mean to say it's all miserable. The Buddha dealt with conditioned phenomena. The Buddha dealt with Sankaras. The Buddha was alive, but he wasn't suffering. His relationship with Sankaras, his relationship with conditioned phenomena, was such that there was no clinging going on. He understood, he saw clearly, he saw accurately. There was wisdom to know and to be able to accord with. And wisdom expresses itself as, as compassion. So to end, I'd like to refer to this quote from the Dhammapada, verse 114, which is uh, actually a verse that's associated with the story of Kisagotami, that uh, woman who was grieving so seriously after losing her child and later went on to become a, a fully awakened arahant. And the verse is, A single day lived awake to the undying state is of much greater value than a hundred years lived without recognizing deathlessness. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Handamayangamma gathaya satu karangadama